0: it is a noteworthy day it's a noteworthy day it is it is a noteworthy day because it is overcast in los angeles baby Mm. no one cares but
1: me (laughs) tell me that you made some tea curled up in bed for a bit turned off your brain at least one of those
0: I did two out of three. So there was tea and there was curling up and there never has been any brain turning off since <laughs> the day I came into this world screaming.
1: <laughs> yeah, I relate to that. I Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That was a lot to ask. That was a, <laughs> it was a big, bold request.
0: It looks like you might be uh, experiencing similar
1: weather over there hmm Yes. Are we you opening say, up our
0: podcast talking about the gosh
1: darn weather? I quit. <laughs> what is it? It's like there's three things that people never want to hear about. The weather, traffic, and your dreams.
0: Okay, so last night, I uh-huh. dreamed.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> you dreamt you were in traffic?
0: <laughs> in the, the traffic rain. getting here. <laughs> That's true, though. If, if I'm talking to someone I don't know very well or don't have a particular fondness for. And they open up with traffic. I'm like, this isn't going to work. Thanks for trying.
1: <laughs> I do find people's dreams pretty interesting.
0: Oh, 100%. Oh, 100%. I'm not
1: buying that that one is not allowed. Tell a me lot about lot of your People dreams. don't like hearing about other people's dreams. I think it's because a lot of people are bad at describing their dreams and describe it very nonsensically. And also, I'm curious, Rowan. Do you dream in color or black and white?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Classic question. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I dream in both first and third person. Same. And I dream in both color and black and white.
1: Mm. I typically only dream in color, but my dreams are so vivid. I've dreamt in s- entire storylines that could be a book or a movie. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I guess for black and white, you know those films that are so desaturated then you'll just get occasional pops of color that mean something like yeah. six cents red doorknobs mm-hmm. everywhere yeah like that kind of okay yeah I, uh, I see I want to hear about your dreams like I want those stories I'll
1: be the scribe you tell them to me okay great hi everyone welcome to our Dreamcast. this is no longer a history mystery mythology podcast we only talk about dreams god could you imagine <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. My stress dreams are also incredibly mundane. Like, my exciting dreams are adventures, but I have stress dreams that are just, like, blown out of proportion.
1: Mm -hmm, Basic mm -hmm. tasks. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you either wake up feeling so grateful that's not the case, or you just wake up feeling the stress for the rest of the day. Nothing in between.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Last dream question. And then I promise I'll stop for everyone who's like screaming at our podcast right now. Have you ever had dreamception? Like you wake up and you think you're awake and you go about your morning or whatever you're doing, and then you actually
1: wake up? Oh, a hundred percent. To the point where my body now. I've, I've, I have this thing I, only in the last few years where I will wake up and get out of bed or like fall out of bed or like something like that and then i'm asleep again and trying to do it and it's like cyclical over and over for like 20 30 times trying to get out of bed and then i started being like okay i can tell it's not real because of this or that and then my brain started outsmarting me so then as i'm dreaming i'm like okay this is definitely reality because i remember you know i would feel xyz and then i'd be in the cycle again are you kidding me oh yeah Oh, you need yeah, a it's top. Terrible. You
0: need a spinning top. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So like not only is it like once I thought I got up and started doing stuff, it would be no joke, like 20, 30 times it would take literally all my mental strength to like physically move my actual body and get out of bed. You would have been burned for a witch. Oh, for like 80 different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have lived long enough to develop that if I was <laughs> in the olden days.
0: All right, everyone, don't talk about your dreams because you might be burned for a witch. And that is Tracy Harrison. And my fellow witch over there is Rowan Hall. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating (coughs) with dreams. Cough, cough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And if you, dear listener, would like to support our podcast, you can buy our merch, join us on Patreon, or leave a review. Alternatively, you can leave a mysterious note in the pages of a book at the library for a curious yet brave soul to find and explore, ultimately leading them to discover this show and their true self. But no matter what you do, we appreciate you.
0: Okay, there's a lot going on there and I need to unpack some of it. Hold the phone. We're going to work back. Did you just say that our podcast might be a part of the journey of someone finding their true self? Yeah, absolutely. I stand very firmly by that. Okay, sure. The weight of the world is upon me. That's fine. Okay, next. <laughs> have you ever found a mysterious note in a book?
1: Yes, I have, although it's not as exciting as I want it to be. This was way back in, I don't know, mid to late 2000s when John Green books were all the age, and mm-hmm. I was really sick, and my mom and my sister went to the bookstore, bought me whichever one of his books was coming out at that point. I don't remember. Okay. And it had a note in it from a nerdfighter. So they they bought that one and brought it to me. And it was very sweet. And I had that hanging up on my wall for a little bit.
0: Your family is lovely. That is a very kind sick day gift.
1: It was so sweet. I don't deserve my mother. She is a saint among women. And I'm very grateful for her.
0: Tracy, I have a hot take.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm ready for it. Am I ready for it? <laughs> this is No, this is
0: bold. What if we do deserve our moms?
1: Ooh, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> Anyone who has met both my mother and your mother would say there are no two humans on the earth who are worthy of those women. They are <laughs> but, saints.
0: But just what if... We walk around the world with the self-confidence of two people who deserve their cool moms.
1: We would be literally unstoppable. And I don't know if I'm ready for that kind of power.
0: I'm ready. I'm doing it. We deserve our (laughs) mothers. This is how it's going to (laughs) be. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Speaking of people we hopefully deserve, but honestly, it's maybe we don't because they're too good. We actually have two new patrons that joined the Willing and Fable family, and we're so grateful. Hey, Amanda Y. Hey, Reverse Aquamath. Thank you for supporting the podcast. You are the reason we get to keep talking about mythology and history and our dreams.
1: (laughs) 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 And our patrons are the ones who chose the topic for this week's episode. We asked our Mythic Level and Above patrons what they wanted to hear, and they... Knowing my heart and soul gave me the gift I wanted, which is this week's topic.
0: Our Mythic patrons really did right by you. There was no bad topic in the bunch, but this Mm-mm. was the one that you you really were gunning for.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really wanted it.
0: And hey, last but certainly not least, you know who else hangs out with us and our patrons? Leah from Greenleaf Geek. Our springtime sponsor is... Greenleaf Geek handmade and curated dice. I never get sick of like
1: saying it. I'm no, dying. <laughs> no, and we mean it every single week when we say we don't deserve her. The TTRPG community is better for her being in it. Oh my God, I love her dice. We cannot, like, go check out Greenleaf Geek. Go check out our website. You can use our code FABLE for 10% off your order. It's F A V L E at greenleafgeek.com. But Rowan, I have one question for you. Yeah. Do you remember your first D&D character?
0: Oh, totally. Absolutely. You were there. I don't know what unfairness allowed you to be introduced to D&D before me, but okay, fine. Our lovely (laughs) friend Aiden, who is a great DM, he's the kind of DM that when players have an idea, he will figure out how to make it happen. And he's mm-hmm. he's great at bending the rules enough so everyone has a good time, but explaining the rules so that everybody feels like they know what's going on. So it's like the best first one shot ever. Mm-hmm. And I played God, I don't remember my character's name, but it was a female damn fear who was breaking into the infirmary of this town we were in to try to drink blood. That's all I that's all I got. <laughs>
1: I remember both of our characters' names from that campaign, even Stop. though I don't remember my own first D&D character's name. Stop it. hmm Who? Yeah, your character was named Alaire and mine was named <gasps> Jezik.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Whoa, okay. <laughs> it was so fun. Tracy's characters pretty much for all of time, have always tried to foil my characters.
1: We do butt heads in D&D so (laughs) hard in ways we don't in real life.
0: Which is hilarious because in the last campaign we played, my character started following your character around like a puppy.
1: I don't know when that turned and they started really like actively disliking each other.
0: I don't know. I don't know why we always do that. But I do remember in our first, my first campaign, your character was winning. And that
1: was annoying. <laughs> it's it's okay. In our last one, your character absolutely won.
0: <laughs> I Yeah, it's fun. I feel like I enjoy having... Actually, you know what it is? It's because I trust you when we play to if your character and my character have conflict for it not to get in the way of the party's goals Mm -hmm. and fighting battles together and keeping the story moving forward. Because I feel like it's fun sometimes to have those moments where, you know, the party butts heads, but it can be it can go too far and then you can't play.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I love playing D&D with you. It is a gift.
0: It is a gift, and uh, of my three Greenleaf Geek dice, it's not even a question. If I were replaying my first character, it would definitely be those red and chrome dice. Oh, yeah. I I actually had a photo shoot with my Greenleaf Geek dice last night. I took pictures of them looking all beautiful.
1: Ooh, that's so satisfying.
0: Yeah, so look at us. We're fancy. We're cool. Um, When you support Greenleaf Geek, know that you're supporting us, so thank you... So much, Greenleaf Geek, for sponsoring us. And patrons, thank you for allowing us to make a podcast. And listeners, thanks for just showing up. We're happy to have you. Tracy. Rowan. What on earth is this topic?
1: Yes. Okay, good. I finally get to talk about it. So today, our patrons gave me the gift of getting to talk to you about Ra's journey through the underworld. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. Everyone needs to know... That I will probably never cover an ancient Egyptian story on this podcast. I'm going to make you
1: do it. I'm going to make you do it because we both have that deep, true, in our heart and soul, unending love for the 1999 movie The Mummy.
0: And The Mummy too. but none of the others. It ended after that. It's so unfortunate
1: that they only made two movies and then they stopped making any movies for The Mummy franchise entirely after that. Right. It's such a bummer. Wow.
0: Okay. So, But Tracy is our our My Egyptology friend, she, if you're at a cocktail party and she can turn the topic to ancient Egypt, she will. And it'll yeah. be awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that implies I have more knowledge about it than I do. It's just that I have more enthusiasm for it than no. knowledge.
0: Tracy, the real lie of that joke was
1: that you would ever want to be at a cocktail party. <laughs> oh, 100%. 100%. No. Yeah. No, thank you. No. Mm-mm. No, I'd be home. Thank you. Sorry. Weird. Uh, what day was it? I can't make it. Oh, unfortunate. Uh, oh, my God. Okay, real quick. And then I
0: promise I'll let you go. When people invite you to a plan, but they don't say when it's going to be. So it's just this open ended question. And you can't be like, Oh, no, I'm busy that day. I hate- I'm i blatant.
1: If someone reaches out to me and says, Hey, what are you doing on Thursday? I'm like, Why? Yeah,
0: what's going on? <laughs> I need to know if I'm gonna get up the introvert energy to do this thing.
1: A hundred percent. No, yeah. There's no no. Mm-mm. Yeah. I need I need so much time to prepare. But what I don't need time to prepare for is this story. I'm so excited. Okay, do it. Go. Okay, all right. So I am going to start with my story, and then we'll jump into some history. Okay. Hi everyone, and welcome to Afterlife Enterprises. Thank you for joining us. My name is Astrid, and I have the honor of being your guide through the afterlife. Our journey today is going to be through Duat, which is the very same region that the Egyptian sun god Ra travels through from west to east each night. If we're lucky, we might even get to see him battle Apophis, the snake deity of primordial chaos. Wouldn't that be a treat? Please remember to keep all hands, feet, as well as extraneous limbs, tentacles, tails, and heads inside the boat at all times. Your safety is our top priority. Everyone ready? Excellent! We're just going to enter through this burial chamber here, as these chambers are touch points between the mundane world and the duat. See that boat or bark over there? We're going to be getting in that to begin our journey, so please make your way over there. Some facts for you all as we get on our way. The Duat is the Egyptian underworld, or realm of the dead. It is the home of Osiris, Anubis, Toth, Horus, Hathor, and Ma'at. This is the place all souls go to after they die, and while some will continue on to paradise, it's not exactly an easy journey to get there. One must work for their happy ending, after all. In this afterlife, souls must battle their way through the Twelve Chambers of Duat, overcoming demons and monsters and crossing over lakes of fire and finding their way past gates guarded by fire-breathing serpents. This path through the afterlife is violent, brutal, and dangerous. You could be killed in here, and a death here means an eternity in oblivion. However, should one be brave enough to make the journey, they will have the honor of standing trial before the gods, And the most worthy of all might even ascend to godhood themselves. The unworthy will have their soul devoured by Amit, but we don't need to worry about that right now. Moving on. Ra's sun bark sails across a river that loops through the sky and down into Duat, and then right back on up again. If you look to the west, you can see the points where the river intersects with the horizon at the mountains, Manu. And if you look to your east... You can see the mountain Baku, where it meets the horizon over there. These mountains also hold up the sky. Talk about double duty. Every day, Ra sails through 24 kingdoms, each representing an hour of the day and night, with different rules and rulers. The daytime is pretty uneventful for Ra, as he rules the 12 kingdoms of the day. At the thirteenth hour, Ra approaches Manu and the gates of night, at which point he dies, and the bark enters Duat. If you listen closely, you might even hear those mourning Ra's death. But don't worry, he'll persevere. Now please, watch your head as we enter Manu and begin our journey through the night. Oh, hello there. Everyone, I'd like to introduce you to the Twelve Goddesses of the Night. They are here to help us through the kingdoms of Duat. Each one is specifically equipped to handle one of the kingdoms. They will be essential to our success tonight, so make sure to give them a big thanks. And please scooch closer together so we can all fit inside the bark. Thank you. And now it's time for us to enter the first kingdom of the night, the Watercourse of Ra. This kingdom is illuminated by a host of fire-breathing snakes, but ultimately it's fairly calm. (laughs) Aren't those snakes just the most impressive creatures? You can see them lining the whole river all the way through the kingdom. Oh, hello, everyone. Please welcome Upawat, the wolf-headed god who will be guiding the boat while the first night goddess protects us from any potential harm. These two are essential in making sure we make it through the first kingdom unscathed. Now, up ahead, you can see the spiked gate guarded by three giant snakes. Watch closely as the second goddess speaks their true name and allows the gates to open. This gives us access to the next kingdom, Ernest, in which all dead kings reside. This is a relatively safe kingdom for us to pass through, so wave hello to the kings of the past. There's not much else to see here, but all of these kings are rather impressive. Still, let us move on. Watch as the third goddess opens the gates to the watercourse of the only god, which is our third kingdom of the night. This kingdom is named so because this is where Osiris lives. Osiris and Four of Horus's sons judge the dead here, and each son is in charge of protecting a different set of organs. Remember those canopic jars from the tomb? These are the very gods whose heads decorate those jars. Moving on to the fourth kingdom called Living One of Forms, which is, admittedly, rather dark. While it is part of Osiris's domain, it is populated with little more than a veritable army of multi-headed snakes. So please keep your body in the bark at all times. Notice how the river is disappearing and turning into more of a ravine? That's how you know we are about to enter the mouth of the tomb. Watch as the fourth goddess of the night transforms our bark into something a bit more practical for land. This is one of my favorite parts. And now we are riding on the back of a giant snake. Time to go to our fifth hour of the night. We are headed straight down into the bottom of the ravine, so hold on tight. This kingdom is simply known as Hidden and is protected by Seker, a mummified falcon god. If you've ever wondered if that terrible person you know will eventually get their just desserts, well, wonder no more. Seker dunks the head of the unworthy in a lake of boiling water. (laughs) Oh, and if you look to your left, you'll notice a few sphinxes as well, and of course, more snakes. What an interesting kingdom this is, but we must be moving on to the sixth kingdom. The realm of night and darkness is where we will be headed next, and it's at the far wall of that canyon over there. But don't let the name fool you. This is where Kepra, the scarab or scarab-faced god, lives. Kepra represents the rising sun and, by extension, the renewal of life. Kepra is going to be joining us for a bit, so welcome aboard, Kepra. Now we're moving on to the Abyss of Waters, also ruled by Osiris. And it's time for our vessel to return to being a boat, as we're going to be riding along a river once more. If you look to your right and to your left up at the banks of the river around us, you'll see mysterious gods gazing down upon us. How fascinating. Look up ahead and you'll also see a giant lion dwelling in this realm. You can wave hello as we sail past. Now we're entering Hour 7, or the Secret Cavern. This is where things will get very interesting, so hold on to your seats, everyone, because this is where Apophis lives. Apophis is the giant snake representing primordial chaos, and his only goal is to devour Ra and thus end the world. But before you get too worried, please take a look to your left and see that Isis is here to help. Watch as she uses her powers to summon her own giant snake named Mehen. This will help Ra take down Apophis. Oh, and look up, and you can see Sekhet and Horus flying in to assist as well. This battle is always so dramatic, but as usual, the gods prevail and seal Apophis away for another night, thus allowing us to move on to kingdom number eight. Our eight is known as the Sarcophagus of the Gods. And if you listen closely, you can hear dead gods calling out to Ra from the banks of the river. What an ominous sound. It always gives me the chills. But here come the four rams that will escort the boat. These four represent Tottenham, a genderless primordial earth god. Thank you all for your assistance. They will guide us to the Ninth Kingdom, known as the Procession of Images. (laughs) I always love that name. And this land is much brighter than the ones we've been through so far. (laughs) It's much more cheery. Why might this be, you ask? Well, it's because this is where the dead go to receive offerings from the living. I always love seeing the deceased remembered by the living and given gifts. It warms my soul, but alas, it is time for us to move on. Hour 10 is similarly a lovely experience. It's called the Abyss of Water, Lofty of Banks. <laughs> Wave hello, everyone, to all the residents who come down each night to greet the bark. <laughs> hello, all. Hello. Thank you for coming. Oh, and hello to you too, Morning Star. Everyone, this is the two-headed snake god with legs who's going to pull our boat along this kingdom. <laughs> it's nice to see you again. Oh, everyone, look. It's time for Ra to wake up. He has been dead this whole journey, and Kepra is finally merging with him to bring him back to life. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole journey. It's so wonderful to see. And it means it's time for us to move on to hour 11. We are now approaching the mouth of the cavern, and you'll see a snake wrapping itself around the bark to help tow us forward. (laughs) So many snakes here. Unfortunately, this realm is less cheery than the last one and appears much darker as it's lit only by a mysterious red light. It's also where all of the worst souls are tortured in the fiery pits by monstrous fire-breathing goddesses. While others call them monstrous, I say they're just doing their job and doing it exceptionally well, I might add. But if endless fiery torture is not your cup of tea, I recommend averting your eyes. Finally... We approach hour twelve, named Darkness Has Fallen and Birth Shines Forth. Such a dramatic yet fitting name. Dawn is breaking, Ra is officially awake, but he is not fully resurrected. Instead, he is reborn as an aspect of himself, Kepra, which represents his capacity as the rising sun. So if you look ahead, you'll notice a giant snake known as Life of the Gods. And fun fact, his body was actually the entire Twelfth Kingdom all along. Watch as he opens his mouth and we sail out into a brand new day. If you look up as we sail through, you can even see his fangs. And everyone, that is Ra's nightly journey through Duat. I hope you found the experience as thrilling and educational as I did. And as always, make sure to thank your gods and goddesses on the way out. Remember, my name's Astrid, and it's my job here at Afterlife Enterprises to help you find the perfect afterlife and continue to educate you on your journey. Thanks again, and bye bye now. Tracy, you brought back Astrid! I did, I did. I mean, there's no other way to tell the story of a boat ride through the underworld than as part of like a disney world style adventure (laughs) led by astrid
0: oh yeah everyone needs to know that i was imagining it as like um oh shoot what okay what is the spooky disney ride where you go through it and there's like these two-dimensional like what haunted mansion no 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 the like the children that sing
1: it's a small world? <laughs> yes. the family-friendly, happy ride <laughs> that you just described as spooky. Come on, it's it's
0: spooky. Singing children is by the rules of horror and logic spooky.
1: <laughs> okay, so if I need to freak you, I'll just take you to like a children's choir concert.
0: Yeah, I mean no well, yeah. Listen, kids are spooky. (laughs) Kids that sing are spookier. Okay. But it is come on, it's like that. You know, you're going through and then, you know, the cast of actors comes out and they're like, Okay, I'm I'm your gods and I'm gonna escort you through this world and they're all like putting on their last minute makeup and then that team goes off and then the next person comes up and (laughs) then the next
1: (laughs) It does have that energy. It really does.
0: But aside from that story, I don't know
1: really anything, so... Okay, so let's get into it. I am going to start by quoting one of my favorite YouTube channels, one that we have used multiple times on this podcast, Overly Sarcastic Productions. We love Overly Sarcastic Productions. So good. So, to quote Red, Perhaps unsurprisingly for a culture so strongly dependent on yearly cycles of river flooding, ancient Egypt had a lot of cyclic themes. The most well known one is probably the journey of Ra.
0: Oh my God, I'm so
1: glad you brought that up. I always forget about the Nile floods. Oh, fundamental to life in ancient Egypt because it would, if it flooded, then you had a potentially good year. If not, ooh.
0: Wow, okay. Geography is the first thing that always goes for me. Okay, cool. I'm back. I get you. Okay.
1: So I got into ancient Egyptian mythology as a little kid. My older sister has always been fascinated with ancient Egypt, to the point where she actually went to school for anthropology and archaeology. So as she was my cool older sister, I followed her around and similarly developed a love for ancient Egyptian mythology at a really early age. And I distinctly remember when I was young, I think I was six or seven, she told me, that the ancient Egyptians were grateful for the sun rising every day because Ra had to fight a god every night and they weren't sure if he would win. So dawn meant that they could live another day. And that's not really exactly how it is, but that's how my six-year-old brain interpreted it. Mm -hmm. And I've remembered that ever since, which is, I think, partially why I was so excited to cover this. It's a story that I would think about very often. Like, anytime I would see a sunrise or sunset, the little six-year-old in my brain would be like, remember the story of Ra fighting? Okay, okay. So the journey of Ra through Duat, or the underworld, is an event that happens every single night. In ancient Egyptian folklore, each hour of the day and night represented a kingdom of the gods. So the 12 hours of the day were ruled by Ra, who is the sun god, as he sailed in his boat from east to west. The 12 hours of the night were ruled by different gods and each hour represented a different kingdom with challenges for both ra and any mortal soul who passed on to the afterlife the gods in the egyptian pantheon don't just chill (laughs) no no (laughs) and they're different too they they work hard and they're like not super interested in messing with mortals like they don't come down and interact with humans the way you would See a ton of like ancient Greek stories
0: right doing. there's no zoo thing going around here
1: no and we are grateful for that yes <laughs> <laughs> just like Ra the rest of the dead journeyed through the various parts of the Duat, not to be revived like Ra is, but to be judged if the deceased was successfully able to pass various demons and challenges in each of the kingdoms, then he or she would reach the weighing of the heart.
0: Oh, I thought that happened
1: first. Okay. Yeah, I weirdly did too. Like, I remember hearing stories of, like, you go into the underworld, and then Osiris can lead you in weighing of the heart. Yeah. And that's it.
0: No, it's like weighing in for a wrestling match. If you don't qualify, you don't have to do the fight. This is, you have to do the fight, and then still
1: maybe not. Keep in mind that This culture and this religion was around for thousands and thousands of years. So things changed. But as much as I know about ancient Egyptian mythology, I feel like there is so much more that I don't know. Oh, yeah. The facts that I assume are, like, not always true. And that is – I mean, I've watched more documentaries about ancient Egypt than I can count. And I still feel like I barely scratched the surface.
0: I feel like that's a major portion of this show. You know, we all have preconceived notions about different mythologies just because of what really poked through into popular culture. And then Mm -hmm. often when you and I really start digging in it, we have that like, oh, I don't know a single thing.
1: Yes. Oh, my God. That's how I felt researching this, because in my head it was, you know, you die, you enter the underworld, you have your heart weighed if you're heart is lighter than the feather, you go on to the field of rushes, if it's heavier, your soul is devoured by Amit, the end. And researching this, at least in this point in time in the religion, you had to go through all these different kingdoms, you kind of had to study in life to know a lot of the riddles, a lot of the answers, the true names of the guardians, and then you had your heart weighed, and if you were successful field of Russia's paradise. If you failed, your soul was devoured.
0: It does have a level of study that reminds me of Catholicism. You know, you have to have certain information to participate at, you know, various levels. I wonder how much of that affected class in ancient Egypt, because not everybody always has access to reading and writing
1: or right. Oh, a ton of people didn't have access to it, but you still see it with the understanding that you'll have to go through this. So I think there's a certain expectation that in life you are dedicated enough to the religion to understand it, taught by those who know, so that when you move on to the afterlife, you have a chance at, you know, eternal paradise. Whereas the the wealthy, we'll talk about it, Kind of have like an open book quiz to the afterlife.
0: <laughs> and I'm correct that if you get devoured or you fail in these challenges, you're gone gone, right? Your your yes. soul or whatever it is, your existence is
1: gone gone. Yeah, which is like the greatest punishment. The worst thing you could do to someone is take away their chance at an afterlife. Okay. okay. So this underworld is not hell. It is not a permanent torture chamber or anything like that it is a series of challenges to get to a better place or potentially to be resurrected oh Mm -hmm. so that's why having your soul devoured rips that away from you you're done that's why like curses that took away your ability to enter into duat were the worst kind of punishment
0: Why don't we, we just don't go out doling curses
1: like we used to, our species. No, and it's a real shame. Yeah. A a disappointment.
0: Petition to bring back an eternal
1: curse, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Am I right, ladies? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So let's talk about the great god himself, Ra. Ra. I'm going to read you a short quote that I love from an article by Faza Haikal for the American Research Center in Egypt that describes the god himself. Quote On a primeval hill, Ra created out of himself the first gods, Shu, dryness and air, and his partner, Tefnut, humidity, who would engender other gods to complete the cosmos Geb, the earth god, and Nut, the sky goddess. In turn, these two birthed the principles of life, namely Osiris, the perfect being, who eventually would rule over the rest of the world, which Ra was busy creating by naming the elements. And by the way, humankind happened out of the tears of his eyes. End quote. Well, that's a whole mood. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right? (laughs) As a curly-haired woman, I am very happy to know the name of a god that is responsible for humidity.
1: Yeah, so you can just go on and curse Tefnut whenever it's too humid for your curly (laughs) hair. (laughs) But Ra, as with many Egyptian deities, has not always simply been Ra. The Egyptian pantheon ebbed and flowed over the centuries and millennia during which these gods ruled, and for much of history, Ra was portrayed as a falcon, but he also shared characteristics with the sky god Horus. So at times, the two deities were merged as ra Horakhti otherwise known as Ra, who is Horus of the Two Horizons. In the New Kingdom, when the god Amun rose to prominence, he was fused with Ra into Amun-Ra. The name Amun-Ra is a name I had heard tossed around a ton oh, in all reference the to ancient Egyptian mythology. Amun-Ra. It never occurred to me that it was a fusion of the separate gods Amun and Ra, which, of course, by the name you would
0: right, you right. put
1: two and two together, but... I think that's why I've always been so confused by the ancient Egyptian pantheon because you have Ra, Amun, Horus, Ra, Horakhti, Amun Ra, and they're all different variations of these gods during different periods of time.
0: Yeah, I've heard, I've heard the you know basic sentence, uh, Amun Ra is a fusion of Amun and Ra, and I was like noted, and then did nothing else with that information in my <laughs> head. So yeah. now that you're saying it, I'm kind of nodding and having that eureka moment. Mm -hmm. But, okay, listen, you know I'm going to reference Hermanubis, so I need you to give out that beautiful fact about Cleopatra that you always say, because it's it's your fact in my mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a fact that a lot of people know, but Cleopatra lived closer in time to us than when the pyramids were built, which speaks volumes about the length of the ancient Egyptian culture. And she lived in a time, very famously, where... Greek and Roman culture was also very prominent. She, you know she was known for her affairs with Mark Anthony and mm-hmm. Caesar. So a bunch of gods started merging, and at one point, someone merged Anubis and Hermes into the very not clever Hermenubis) <laughs>
0: happens all the time all over the world. Cultures that are taking power absorb the religions and practices of the other culture. It's just not always quite as obvious as
1: Hermanubus. <laughs> <laughs> Hermanubis has a special place in my heart. <laughs> so to add further complication to all of this, Ra also has a few different aspects. Three, There's three main ones. They roughly represent birth, adulthood, and old age. When you see Ra presented with a scarab head, he's in his keper form, which represents rebirth. This is because the scarab, which arises from the desert sands at the first rays of the sun, pushing a ball of dung carrying his eggs, was believed to be self-created. By midday, Ra was represented as a falcon-headed god with a sun disk behind him, and finally at sunset he became Atum, an old man who had completed his life cycle and was ready to disappear and be regenerated at a new day. In art, Ra was also represented in a variety of forms, but the most popular was the form of him as a man with the head of a falcon. A solar disc usually surrounded his head with a coiled serpent surrounding that disc. His Kepri form had the head of a beetle, and in the underworld he was often depicted with the head of a ram in some literature he's described as an aging king with golden flesh silver bones and hair of lapis lazuli well that's gorgeous
0: right I mean, how
1: fancy can you imagine
0: to to specify all of these depictions are gorgeous like scarabs ick me out because i don't like bugs but the artwork with the scarab head is always Beautiful. just it's so interesting to hear, you know, the solar disk behind the head and think of all the Renaissance art with the angels who have the the disk behind their head and mm-hmm. then hear about him having a the head of a ram when he's in the underworld and think of the depictions of Satan and his goat head. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah. It's it's so good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he's at his peak, he's got the solar disk and when he's in the underworld, he's got those horns and that kind of ram depiction i had never put those together that is so clever
0: I, yeah i just yeah, I, I always wonder where things come from and these images are just have made their way all over the world the very much so the, the sun rays shining behind someone's head whether or not it is a specific disc that image is very popular full stop everyone yeah. loves glowiness behind the hair
1: <laughs> what's extra cool about his disc is around the outside of it is also a serpent coiled Ooh. At the very edge of it which i love i love for him
0: <laughs> there's a lot of snakes <laughs> in this story and i i wanted to well i guess you kind of answered it but snakes are not always bad but they're sometimes doing bad stuff from what i've got right
1: right in that story you see there are times where you are riding on the back of a snake a snake is pulling the boat a two-headed snake with legs comes up and helps you and then also there are fire breathing snakes and apophis the god of primordial chaos and snakes guarding the gates like they're just all across the board there's snakes everywhere some are good some are bad some are neutral you are both
0: within and without the snake
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) so the sun god ra was often assigned a leadership role in the pantheon In fact, his role was often analogous to the relationship between the pharaoh himself and the people of Egypt. Since Ra was the first king as well as the creator of kingship itself, he ruled over earth until he became old and then departed to the heavens where he continued his rule and became the ancestor of the king of Egypt. Thus the pharaohs were tied directly to the god himself and the people of Egypt, sometimes referred to themselves as the cattle of Ra.
0: I would love to know if Cattle of Ra came first or the, like, sacred Cattle of Helios
1: came first. Ooh. Ooh. I don't know. Because they're both <laughs> very, very ancient cultures. Right, and they, and they have— just someone screaming the answer at us right now
0: yes, thank you. We, I wish we could hear you. <laughs> but the idea of cattle being associated with the sun, every fact you say, I'm just going to go, I wonder about this. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. Keep doing it. I won't have answers, but I love it.
0: I'm glad you explained that, though. I feel like that's this is my first time actually understanding the many faces of Ra.
1: It took a while for me to really process, and it was really helpful to learn that it's kind of meant to show different phases of life it's meant in art there's sort of a if you see this it means this consistency that I think is hard to translate when you just see it all over the place and no one tells you hey that ram-headed god in the underworld is raw just as much as the scarab head is raw just as much as the falcon head is raw
0: in popular American media, when it's simplified, we also tend to think of phases of life most often associated with women, right. which is not true for all of time or around the world. It's just lately that's kind of the image we that's kind of the imagery we get. and so it is really exciting to see that from a Not just a male god, but, like, the male god associated with the sun. And you and I talk all the time about men in the sun, women in the moon,
1: damp caves, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rowan, would you like to know where we got some of this information? Yeah. Good. Okay, good. You didn't have a choice, so I'm glad. (laughs) No. We get most... Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories go <laughs> with the telling. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We get much of our information on the afterlife and Ra's nightly journey from a text known as the Amduat, which literally translates to text of the hidden chamber, which is in the underworld. Amduat. Um, it's book of Duat. Book okay. of the underworld. This is an ancient Egyptian funerary text that was written on the inside of the pharaoh's tomb for reference in the afterlife. And up until the 21st dynasty, it was reserved only for the pharaohs. Let's talk about a leg up on the afterlife. Pharaohs get their own cheat sheet.
0: It's, yeah, it's, it's a manual, right? It's,
1: it's a manual. So in an ideal tomb, it would have all 12 hours of the Omduan on the walls for the pharaoh. Apparently, in reality, that wasn't always done. It wasn't always fully filled out or fully completed. The walls of the Ramseid period tombs, which is 1292 BC to 1189 BC, were decorated with the Amduat, the Book of Gates, and the Book of Chambers. Each of these offered alternate yet largely complementary representations of a soul's journey through Duat. Ancient Egyptians believed that death was merely a step towards another existence in the afterlife, but one needed to earn their way to paradise. They had to journey through their duat just like Ra, and thus the pharaohs got extra help along the way. Can you opt out? I think you wouldn't want to. There's never
0: an opt out. I don't know why I'm asking. <laughs> like, I've never heard of an opt out, and, you know, if, if it was for all of eternity, probably you wouldn't opt out. I'm just wondering if someone died and be like, no, nah, it's okay. I don't need the snake boat. No, I'm
1: good in this chamber. This one's got fire-breathing snakes, and it's kind of dope. I'm good here.
0: You don't have to weigh my heart. We're good.
1: (laughs) Hold the feather. Yeah, just you hold on to that feather. Don't you worry about me. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the Archaeological Museum of Zagreb owns an extensive fragment of the Amduat, And they say that the central motif of these chapters, or ours, is the image of the deceased and its magical role in successfully passing through the levels of Duat with the help of the gods. According to the text, the image was placed in the hidden chamber, and through magic, rituals, and utterances, the image of the deceased becomes able to unite with Ra on his own journey to the horizon. Magical means, which implies knowledge of the names of the gods, are required of the soul. There's horizontal text placed on the uppermost part of the papyrus, which states, if their names are known, he shall travel and pass through Duat, and he shall not be turned back from flying up before Ra. So remember, Rowan, souls can die in Duat, and a death there is permanent. No chance at resurrection, no passage to paradise, do not pass go, you're done. So work hard in life, learn those names, know the magical incantations, or you're kind of screwed i can study hard (laughs) study hard work hard Uh, and a book you can study is the book of two ways which is one of the coffin texts there's even a map-like image of the duat in that book the book of the dead and coffin texts were intended to guide people who had recently died through duat's dangerous landscape for those who were ready for death and who were worthy in life the journey through duat might not be simple but it was doable, and it could lead to paradise. If you remember the snakes that guarded the gates in my story, those actually came from the Book of Gates, not from the Amduat. The Book of Gates extends upon the Amduat, and it includes gates protected by one or more serpents, the souls needing to name the guardians, and extra depictions of things that happened in Duat during the journey that were not in the original Amduat. To quote Ancient Egypt online, In early versions of the Book of Gates, the fifth hour depicts the judgment hall of Osiris. However, in the tomb of Seti I, the deceased king stands before Osiris, and the emphasis moves from the judgment of the dead to the association between the deceased pharaoh and Osiris. His successors copied this innovation with minimal changes to the position of the god in the scene. Most versions of the text also include extra texts which refer only to the king, ensuring the status of the deceased pharaoh. Probably the most famous section of the Book of Gates is the text which describes the different races of people. The Egyptians divided all people into Libyans, Nubians, Asiatics, and Egyptians. All races were welcomed in the afterworld, and all are depicted journeying through its chambers. That's good news! Right? I like that for them. I like that they're like, hey, everyone can do this journey. Here's an example of everyone doing it. Study hard, learn the names, know the maps.
0: It's also interesting to hear, because when I was researching Medusa, the Greeks were not quite as accepting of the Libyans, at least in the texts I read. I wouldn't necessarily say that's that's the rules, but you know, the right. Medusa myth is not super... Accepting
1: of really anyone, actually. <laughs> if you're not Perseus. You're not really uh, coming out squeaky clean. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Can I interest you in a few cool architectural and archaeological facts?
0: Yeah. Okay. You know what? Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm putting on my pants that are, like, weirdly tight at the bottom and weirdly big around the top and yeah. a button down that I don't know how anyone wore in that heat. And, um... Yep. A really cool hat, and there's going to be, um, like, a, a relic that I have mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. will guide me to information that you need the relic to find, and I will be quippy. Okay, I'm ready.
1: Okay, all right, so you're in your outfit. It is tan and beige and white. You have your hat. You have your journal. We walk into a burial tomb from the 18th and 19th dynasty. The walls are tan, There are hieroglyphics everywhere, and the walls of this room are kind of oval around a sarcophagus, not in the center of the room, but kind of off-center, facing an exit, and the walls around you depict the last hour of the Amduat, and the sarcophagus itself pointed towards the entrance of rebirth.
0: Okay, my explorer senses are tingling. But before Mm -hmm. I go into that, can I just quickly uh, say that in this version of us being explorers, um, all the Egyptians get to keep the Egyptian artifacts. Those are the rules. We're just here for fashion and photography.
1: Fashion, photography, here for looksies. here for saying we did it and then leaving. That's what we're here for. Okay, cool,
0: cool, cool. So my explorer senses are tingling and I have my camera up and I'm wondering why the sarcophagus isn't in the middle? Because I don't think you'd mention that if it wasn't important.
1: It was not in the middle because it wanted. To, they wanted to situate it close to the final curve of the room that had the main wall depicting the hour of rebirth. And so instead of being in the center of the room amidst all of the Omduat, ideally, not always in practice, was it fully there, it was off-center along that final chapter. And if you would like to describe it for our listeners, I have a picture of the tomb of tutmosis III. Oh, this is Ready cool. for you to see.
0: Yeah, okay. So I can't see the whole room, but it's very clear that... It curves around, and
1: it looks like the ceiling is
0: very blue, which... It
1: is. It is flat and blue, and all of those little gold specks are actually individual stars painted on the ceiling.
0: Okay, so then that was very expensive paint or stone or whatever. We're back to lapis land, but the the artwork... It looks like a mix of artwork and hieroglyphics. Again, I'm no expert. I'm just here with a camera. Um, But it's so clear even with how aged it is that this is very vibrant Mm -hmm. work. It's so colorful. And you can see the snake pulling the boat very clearly even to my rookie mind. And the sarcophagus it's it's not as big as I would have thought it was. Um but it's it's very, it's also mirrors the shape, the oblong round shape. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it has you know hieroglyphics all over it and it's another chunky piece of like very colorful stone. This whole room yeah. just is wealth. Just gorgeous.
1: Oh yeah. If you think this room is beautiful, let's walk on over our explorer selves, we're going to move, head into a late 19th and 20th dynasty tomb, because these tombs change up the architecture. The tomb we just left, Tutmosis III, was a literal interpretation of the Omduat, that round oval chamber with that final wall leading to rebirth was meant to literally represent what Duat feels like. But now as we move into our next tomb, The walls, instead of curving in a circle around us, curve up and over us in more of an arch. Oh! The sarcophagus has moved. It is now in the center of the room in a depression. And the vision we get is of the famous hieroglyph representing the horizon, Akhet. This is a glyph with a circle and sort of two mountain shapes on either side. Uh Uh-huh. So the room curving up around the sarcophagus now has a less literal interpretation of rebirth and represents that person's specific rebirth instead of the general sense of rebirth from the Omduat.
0: gotcha that's very
1: cool right so adventurer rowan
0: yes well listen i'm an adventurer but i'm just here doling out sunscreen and snacks
1: and taking pictures of people with their doing their work <laughs> doing vital work but can you as our <laughs> as our novice adventurer in the room describe what you see in this image before you of the curved wall of Seti I?
0: Holy guacamole. Okay. Wow. This phew, I feel almost bad for going on about the colors in the first picture because this is even This looks like it was painted yesterday. It's, it's so
1: bright. It's vibrant. It's so beautiful. The blues
0: I can't tell in from this picture because it's not big enough, but it looks like it was either actually inlaid with lapis or the paint is just that rich that it looks mm-hmm. like I'm looking at actual stone. And the in this one, the images are much clearer, I think just because it seems to be preserved a tiny bit better. Um, and the thing that I've always really been interested about in... These depictions is you see, you know, everyone is kind of familiar with the the hu- humanoid depiction in Egyptian mm-hmm. art of like the person kind of turned sideways. It's such a cool photograph in particular because not only are you getting depictions of people who just have traditional, you know, human head, human body, mm-hmm. but you're getting the depictions of the animal heads on the animal bodies in the same image, so you can actually yeah, compare them. Yeah, you them. see
1: the gods helping the souls on their journey.
0: Yeah, and it so it looks like also in this image we're seeing the boat that's very crowded with the guardians and the souls potentially.
1: Yeah, and this is not from the Amdu'at. This is actually images from the Book of Day and the Book of Nights oh. on the wall of Seti I.
0: Oh, okay. So yeah, I, I clearly can't read this or do anything with oh, it besides no, go, <laughs> ooh, shiny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, but it is quite beautiful. From the current evidence, the 18th dynasty appears to be the last period in which Egyptians regularly included multiple objects from their daily lives into the tombs. Beginning in the 19th dynasty, tombs contained fewer items from daily life and started to include objects made especially for the next world. This means that the change from the 18th to the 19th dynasties formed a dividing line in burial traditions. The 18th dynasty more closely resembled the immediate past in its customs, whereas the 19th dynasty anticipated the customs of the late period. People of the elite ranks in the 18th dynasty placed furniture as well as clothing and other items in their tombs, objects they undoubtedly used during their life on earth. Beds, headrests, chairs, stools, leather sandals, jewelry, musical instruments, and wooden storage chests, which were highly valuable, were present in these tombs. While all the objects listed were for the elite, many poor people did not put anything beyond weapons and cosmetics into their tombs.
0: Weapons and cosmetics. It's a good combo. It's all I
1: want. It's a good combo. <laughs> I. It also always blew my mind learning about how deeply valuable wood was mm-hmm. in ancient Egypt. Because yeah. Because they live in the desert. And to us, like, I have a wooden desk in front of me. Like, it's just wood. It's everywhere. And we value things that were very common back then.
0: Don't get me started. Let me go off about the Hatfields and the McCoys again. Let's talk about Logan.
1: <laughs> just teasing. Okay. So... No elite tombs survived unplundered from the Ramseid period. In this period, artists decorated tombs belonging to the elite with more scenes of religious events rather than the everyday scenes that had been popular since the Old Kingdom. The funeral itself, the funerary meal with multiple relatives, the worshipping of the gods, even figures in the underworld were subjects in elite tomb decorations. The majority of objects found in the Ramseid period tombs were made for the afterlife. Aside from jewelry, which could have been used also during life, objects in Ramesside tombs were manufactured for the next world. It's where you start to see oh. depictions of servants in small statues mm-hmm. all over the tombs to represent the people to help them in the afterlife.
0: You know what I would love to know about Egyptian art? When we look at depictions of people you know today we look at people and you go through those periods all the time but you know someone wants to look more hourglass in their own depiction or someone mm-hmm. wants to look thinner or you know in renaissance art or medieval art it's always different like more rubenesque or longer hair or whatever i would kill to know what Ancient Egyptians wanted to look like in depictions of themselves. Like, oh, I wish my I don't know, shoulders are broader. Oh, I wish my eyes were bigger. Like, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I I want to
1: I want to know. I only know a couple, and this is just from.
0: You actually have this information?
1: Yeah, off the top of my head, from the endless documentaries I watch, and I don't have a ton of like the physical aspects they want to show off, but. They wanted to mirror the gods. They wanted to show that they had a direct connection to the gods. It's why you see the classic pharaoh's beard. Mm -hmm. That kind of... I don't know if it was wooden, the the strap of it. And the reason I say that is because there's actually a couple of amazing, and we will cover them on this podcast, women who were pharaohs. Mm -hmm. The most famous, to me at least, probably aside from Nefertiti, is... Hatshepsut. Very famously, Hatshepsut depicted herself in the male form of a pharaoh. Oh. Even though it was well known that she was a woman, but she gave herself those symbols to prove her power and her worthiness as a pharaoh. We will absolutely cover Hatshepsut on this podcast at some point. Same with Nefertiti, Cleopatra as well. We love badass women is what we're saying. Yes. Yes. I can't believe you
0: had any information on that vein for me. That was cool.
1: Yeah, I wish I had more. I mean, there's the coal-lined eyes to represent the eye of Horus or the eye of Ra. You see it described by the way, that famous Egyptian eye. And that's part of the story of humans coming from the tears of Ra, the eye of Ra, um, lining your eyes with coal Mm -hmm. to kind of symbolize that. That's all I got for you, though. I'll take it. (laughs) So, Rowan, the last little fact I have for you is not about pharaohs, but about the average person. Oh, okay. We talk so much about pharaohs' tombs, their advisors' tombs, the chief of police having a beautiful tomb. All these different people had—oh, yeah, higher-level people in the government had tombs as well. It wasn't just the pharaoh. Oh. It's a class thing, for sure, but people who were not able to have a tomb, how were they buried? Well— According to the British Museum, the ancient Egyptians believed that it was important to be buried properly. A proper burial would allow them to live again in the afterlife. Thus, most people who could afford to spent a lot of time and effort making sure they would be buried well. Most ordinary Egyptians were probably buried in the desert. The relatives would wrap their body in a simple cloth and bury it with some everyday objects and food. Those with more wealth would be able to afford a better burial. The graves of some craftsmen and workers have been found containing a mummified body as well as bread, fruit, amulets, and furniture for the afterlife. So, Rowan, no matter who you were, it was vital to be ready for your journey through Duat. And now, all of our listeners will be a little better prepared for it themselves, should this be the journey they choose.
0: (laughs) Nicely done, (laughs) Astrid. That was cool. I'm glad you covered the bit about the everyday person, because we hear about that exactly zero.
1: I didn't, I couldn't before researching this have told you how the everyday person was buried. Obviously they couldn't have had their own tomb, they couldn't have had the big fancy setup. but I didn't know the answer. And truly being mummified was an extreme luxury. And then a step down from that was having your own tomb in this big burial chamber. And then a step down from that is just your family very kindly and lovingly wraps you and places you in the desert with as much as they can give you for the afterlife maybe it's just weapons and cosmetics
0: sometimes that's all you need although just weapons and cosmetics that means that those are things that that
1: family doesn't have anymore like that's so but it's not going nowhere it's not like how we think of it as you're sticking something in the ground and that's where it's staying it's the same as giving it to your friend or giving it to a family member to help them on a journey. You're giving it to right. them for them to use on their journey.
0: Right. It's not that you're just making it disappear. It still has value. It's just that then living your everyday life, you no longer have access to that thing. That is expensive. Mm-hmm. Good job. I feel like I actually understand So many things that I just (laughs) knew the sentence of and went, yep, Amun-Ra, check.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. It's it's weirdly a lot to digest, Mm. I think, compared to a lot of other contemporaneous religions that feel a little bit simpler. Even though it is one of the most popular ones. You hear people talk about ancient Egyptian religions and ancient Greek. Right. But – I think there is a Hollywood level to the ancient Egyptian religion that a lot of people know of. And it's a lot of the symbols, a lot of the visuals. You know, you think of the mummy, you think of Prince of Egypt. Yeah.
0: I mean, constantly you and I are going, I thought I knew this. I did not know this. I have media that I associate with it. And that's in one corner of my brain. And then now as I'm researching, I'm like, it's just constantly melding and
1: relearning and... Mm -hmm. It's exciting. For as much as I love ancient Egyptian mythology, and and all mythology, as much as the person who went to school originally for (laughs) archaeology in me geeks out about this, I have this weird processing thing of like, I hear, it's like you said, you hear all these facts, you can recite the sentences, but that deeper understanding takes a little bit more time to get to. And I feel like I was really excited to cover this episode because it brought a lot of clarity to me around a story that I thought I knew very well and then sat down and realized, I know it's surface level pretty okay.
0: Well, and then there's the whole thing, like, we're at this level now, which is, like, just the next one from surface level. There's still so much. It's, like, sometimes Tracy and I like to text each other and be like, what if we run out of stories, which is the most anxiety-fueled, silly thought. (laughs) And then (laughs) we'll both realize, like, oh... Right. We have
1: so much to learn. (laughs) So much. I didn't even I was afraid like I had no concept of how long this episode would be. I was like, it's either going to be 20 minutes of me just going through the facts or it's going to be an hour and a half of us chatting about all of this. Either way, I can't even scratch the surface of mummification, of that whole process, of where it started, of how long it lasted, of how they'd done it, of the canopic jars, of like, who got mummified? There's just, there isn't time. And we have whole other episodes we can dedicate to it. And so I try to remind myself to not worry about running out of stories, to remember that there's always more context to give, there's more to learn, and there has to be a cutoff somewhere. That's what I also have to tell myself while researching.
0: If I could just tattoo on the inside of each eyelid context and nuance.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're kissing your biceps, like context and nuance.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, Tracy. A pair of weapons named context and
1: nuance. Oh, okay. All right. So we each have a saber, like we both have swords. (laughs) How do... Which one do you want? Do you want Context or Nuance? I want Nuance. Okay. Mine's going to be Context. So my saber is now named Context and yours is named Nuance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm also imagining a character who fights, like, Rapier Dagger. You know, the rapier is called Context. This is the bigger boy. And then the tiny rapier for the specific work is Nuance.
1: (sighs) Oh, my God. That's so good. So if that appears in the next chapter of Wizard and the Rogue... You heard it here first, folks, and you know where we stole it from.
0: I'm just saying, I already established that Rosalind likes to name her weapons. Thank you for
1: coming to my TED Talk. Mm-hmm. We only know about her two tiny daggers, The Last Resorts. We don't know what <laughs> else she uses. <laughs> it could be context and nuance. Ah,
0: uh, yes! I love this! Okay.
1: <laughs> I have control of the next chapter, so who knows? <laughs> I do. <laughs>
0: All right, Tracy, if you can top that, tell me something good.
1: All right. My something good, it's two things.
0: No, you can't have two. There can only be one good thing.
1: (laughs) There can only be one good thing at any given moment. Well, I say screw that, and I have two. Because there's one that I have been enjoying for a couple weeks now that I just haven't mentioned on the podcast, but it has brought me this, like, deep, quiet joy. And that is that Rowan sent me a care package a few weeks ago that just (laughs) – literally made me tear up with how loved i felt because you guys it had a travel jewelry case that i was like drooling over when she was using because it's beautiful and so handy and inside of course she tucked a little note that said for our eventual world tour of willing and fable which melted my heart Hmm. she then had a postcard with beautiful art and a quote from my favorite poem and then a book of an illustrated version of my favorite poem and then this amazing handmade metal bat that is now hanging upside down from a shelf next to where i podcast (laughs) and all of it is so amazing and that bat is like my comfort bat he sits with me while i work he he motivates me he tells me nice things about myself and he needs a name so I need to figure out a name for this sweet boy at some point.
0: I'm so glad you liked that. And tell everyone what your favorite poem is.
1: Oh, and of course, everyone get you a friend who knows your favorite poem, like at the top of their head. My favorite poem, Always and Forever, is The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. It's one of the best. And not to
0: brag, but I know the favorite poems of many of my closest humans. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> the problem is, I, you have a ton of favorite poems, but I know we both have this deep love for the Love Song of Day Alfred Prufrock, oh so I God. think of it as, like, I think of it as your favorite poem because I also d- connect it with you because we learned about it together many years ago. I think it might we be my babes. favorite. It might be my favorite. I, oh, I
0: There's
1: think just it something might, about it. Yeah. every time I read it, I pick up new things. You guys, it is like this stream of consciousness of this older man at a party who also gets distracted and just thinks about life. Oh, it's beautiful.
0: The Coffee Spoons line does me in every time.
1: Coffee Spoons gets me. The, the line about he is not Prince Hamlet, he's just mm. a side character. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. Come on, you guys, it doesn't get better than that.
0: It honestly, it is almost Shakespearean in its... And it's uh, weaving and it's use of plain language and then it's use of, like, high-minded ideas. I love it. We love mm-hmm. it. I'll make sure yes. people have access to it somehow. It is. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of the one. But wait, you had another good thing. Yeah, you so had another very good Very quickly,
1: thing. the other one I had was that it was a lovely day this weekend and I drove to a world-famous botanical garden known as Longwood Gardens. Mm. Got to explore beautiful flowers, beautiful trees. It is, like the coolest place if you're ever in proximity i would say in the eastern yeah coast it's one of those spots that
0: people <laughs> in the northeast coast like drive to i think yeah
1: oh yeah it's worth it it's worth it to drive to it's beautiful and magical and it was it has a conservatory with a ballroom and this like castle looking tower and the house of the family who built the estates back in the early 1900s, preserved so you can see what it looked like. It, it was just a beautiful day. It went with two friends of mine. And it was so just like healing to be out in nature that way that was so beautifully crafted and maintained.
0: The pictures of you from that day are like postcard perfect. You're so photogenic.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank you. That's very nice. It was very exciting. I haven't taken photos in so long because of, you know, the pandemic. So I got to use that day as a kind of faux engagement shoot for the two friends I went with because they have an actual engagement shoot they're going to do with their photographer. But they let me take a million pictures of them when we were there. And they loved it because it was like a practice shoot for them. And I loved it because I miss taking photos of people. It's There's only so many photos I can take of my cat before it gets a little too much.
0: Lola, cover your ears. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, Rowan. Yes. Tell me something good.
0: See, it's a real bummer that I'm following you because my something good is also a care package. My parents sent me a care package. Oh, I oh know. see, this is why we don't deserve them. That's so lovely. I know, but what if I do deserve my grandparents?
1: You do deserve them. You sent me a care package so thoughtful it brought literal tears to my eyes.
0: Care packages really just are one of those gifts that, uh, it's it's such a a show of care and thought and uh, my parents thrifted a bunch of clothes for me which was oh yeah it was really cool and one of them is a purple velvet pantsuit
1: it's so cool oh so am i hearing that that means we both have purple velvet blazers now we do we
0: both have purple velvet blazers
1: I love that for us.
0: Actually, my parents sent me in that box not one, but two velvet blazers, and I feel really seen. <laughs> oh my God.
1: You have three velvet blazers now. Four? I...
0: Three. <laughs> I just, okay, a velvet blazer is such a power move. It's su- truly a blazer in general, and my blazer tastes range th- four velvet blazers. I have four velvet blazers. <gasps> <laughs>
1: I thought you had one before I gave you the black one.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I have four now. Um, but the the blazers it runs for me from like the oversized. I could wear this blazer as a dress. It looks like it's eating me. To yeah, a fitted blazer. We oh,
1: we love a blazer. Honestly, Listen, they make I, me
0: feel like Kate Blanchett.
1: Yes, which honestly, Kate Blanchett, ten out of ten. Like anything that woman does or is in, I'm sold. I'm sold. I feel like she wears a blazer like no one else. Same with Charlize Theron.
0: Yeah, you're right. Well, so thanks to my parents, and their so cool, amazing care package, which contained (laughs) black and tan tie-dye ultra flare pants from Woodstock. Like, Oh my
1: god. I know, can you even? How were your parents the coolest people ever. Like I will never be as genuinely cool as they are.
0: It's crushing to know that. I too, I too am aware of the lack of cool that I have. Um but they make me cooler, you know? They they send me tie-dye flare pants from Woodstock and I can
1: <laughs> Yeah. The only reason I'm even somewhat cool is because of my association with you. I wore my purple velvet blazer at a very important work meeting. Ooh. And felt very cool.
0: Did you feel empowered?
1: Hell yeah I did.
0: Hell yeah, I did. Mm, no one can mess with a velvet blazer. That—that That is your wisdom for today, friends. One, you deserve your cool mom. You deserve your cool dad. You deserve your cool familial member that is neither of those you, things.
1: Yeah, you deserve your cool found family, too. We're going to throw that one in there because I love a found family.
0: You deserve it. And also, <laughs> velvet blazers are the answer to every problem. I, I will not be corrected. <laughs>
1: Thank you all so much for joining us today and for listening to this podcast. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay?
0: Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall, that's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willinginfable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.